And there's a number of reasons why Christians feel like they cannot be used of God in a great way. And what I want to share with you this morning is three different stories in the Bible of people that God used despite the misconception that because of their circumstances, there was some reason that they couldn't be used. And so the title of the message this morning is very simply this, it's never too late. It's never too late. Let's pray, and then we're going to look at some of these this morning. Father, we love you. Again, we thank you for a great uh, time to be together this morning in your house. I pray that you just continue uh, working in our lives this morning, and I pray that you'd use the message to help us to be encouraged to continue to live for you. Thank you again for all you do for us in Jesus' name. Amen. First thing I want you to see is this, and I know you're probably somewhat familiar with the story of Moses, but this, Moses was old, and God still used him. And I, for those who may be unfamiliar, let me give you a little background on Moses' life. We know half of the story of Moses, at least because uh, the latter half, I should say, how he was so hesitant to answer the call that God had put on his life to lead the children of Israel out of Egypt. But it wasn't always that way. Moses was raised in luxury as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. And you can just imagine all of the perks, if you will, that came with being raised in the palace of one of the mightiest men in the world. And most of you know the story of Moses being hidden in the bulrushes and being found by Pharaoh's daughter, and she paid Moses' mother to, to raise Moses, but at the time that Moses was finally old enough to, to kind of do things on his own, so to speak, he was sent back to live with Pharaoh's daughter and essentially with Pharaoh himself. And so in Exodus chapter 2, in verse number 11, Moses is, is a little bit older by this point. It says, and it came to pass in those days when Moses was grown that he went out unto his brethren and looked on their burdens. You remember, the children of Israel were being held in bondage by the Egyptians, and they were forced to work, and they were forced to work hard, and they were forced to uh, even make their own straw to make the bricks, and then they had to build the things out of these bricks, and they were slaves. They, they, they did anything that Pharaoh told them that he wanted them to do, and they didn't really have a choice in the matter. Moses, being raised in the palace, probably would have seen some of this, but didn't click with him until one day as he's grown, he walks out and he sees what's going on and he realizes or recognizes or remembers maybe that these are his people. And he gets a burden for those people. He sees the, the hardships that they're going through and he makes a split decision. It says, and he spied an Egyptian smiting in Hebrew, one of his brethren. And he looked this way and that way. And when he saw that there was no man, he slew the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. By that time, Moses was 40 years old. In fact, put a bookmark in Exodus chapter 2, if you will, and turn over to Exodus chapter 7. If you're familiar with the way the, the book of Acts is laid out in Acts chapter 6, we find that the deacons were uh, instituted and voted upon and brought into the church, and one of those deacons was Stephen, and it didn't take very long before Stephen was brought before a council where he was basically defending his life. And Stephen takes that opportunity in all of Acts chapter 7 to give the message of the gospel to his accusers. In verse number 22, he's telling them the story of the children of Israel. And it says in verse number 22, And Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty in words and in deeds. And when he was full 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brethren, the children of Israel. Because of his training in Pharaoh's house, he would have, he would have had, uh, he definitely would have been skilled in combat enough to handle an Egyptian on his own. 
you know, they were raised to be essentially the pinnacle of, of, of physical strength. And so I'm sure that Moses by that time was, was quite a, a physical specimen of a man, if you will. No wonder that Moses thinks that one day he is going to be the one to deliver God's people out of Egypt. Now, we know the last half of Moses' story. Don't, tell, don't, don't ask me. I'm not qualified. I'm not worthy. But that's not the way Moses started. In fact, Stephen really tells us that uh, in verse 24. And seeing one of them suffer wrong, he defended him and avenged him that was oppressed and smote the Egyptian. Get this in verse 25. For he supposed his brethren would have understood how that God by his hand would deliver them. But they understood not. Moses, in his mind, thought... There's no way that God's going to use anybody else to deliver the children of Israel out of Egypt besides me. Surely they're going to understand why I killed this Egyptian. So the Moses that we know later in life is not the same Moses that we find as a young, confident leader. He's 40 years old. He's strong. He's educated. He's skilled. He has political clout. He has military knowledge, obviously physically gifted enough to kill an Egyptian. And he had a great love for his brethren, for his people that were being oppressed. And that's when it all began to unravel. Because the next day, in fact, if you go back to Exodus chapter 2, in verse number 13. And when he went out the second day, behold, two men of the Hebrews strove together, and he said to them that did wrong, Wherefore smitest thou thy fellow? And he said, Who made thee a prince and a judge over us? Intendest thou to kill me as thou killest the Egyptian? And Moses feared and said, Surely this thing is known. How they knew, the Bible doesn't tell us. Moses looked this way, and he looked that way, and when he didn't see anybody, that's when he killed the Egyptian and buried him in the sand. And maybe somebody saw a foot sticking out at the end or something. I don't know, but they caught him. Somebody saw him and knew exactly what Moses had done. And now Moses is scared for his life. The day before, he was this confident leader. Surely they're going to understand why I did that. I'm going to be the one to lead the children of Israel out of Egypt. And the next day, he's fearing for his life. And so his own people reject him when they find out what he's done. Pharaoh then wants to kill him. He's left with no other option but to run, and he does just that. He runs into the wilderness. He marries a daughter of a priest, has a few children, and settles in to spend what he thinks is going to be the rest of his life on the backside of a desert raising sheep. But as so often is the case, God does some of his best work in the wilderness and that's exactly what he did for Moses. Moses had spent the first 40 years of his life learning how to be a somebody. And just now, he's heading off into the wilderness to spend 40 years learning how to be a nobody. And for four long decades, he worked there in the backside of the desert. And one day, God came and met Moses at the burning bush. And there he is, just this ordinary shepherd in a forgotten area of the world. No doubt his dreams of, of grandeur had long faded. He's learned very well what it means to be a nobody. And in Exodus chapter 3 and verse number 11, Moses said unto God, Who am I that thou should go, that I should go unto Pharaoh, and that I should bring forth the children of Israel out of Egypt? Isn't it amazing how God changed Moses' heart? Forty years ago, surely God's going to pick me. And now 40 years later, God, why would you choose me? God wasn't done yet. He still had work for Moses to do. God wanted to use this Moses. Not the Moses from 40 years ago. He couldn't use him because he wasn't ready. But God wants to use this Moses. He had gone from surely God wants to use me. It only makes sense to why would God use me? That doesn't make sense at all. God had him right where he wanted him and right where he could use him. And by this point, the Bible says that Moses was 80 years old. 
His voice wasn't what it used to be. Moses' strength was obviously not what it used to be. He wasn't going to waltz into Egypt with a mighty army and overtake the, the, the greatest uh, nation in the world and grab those people, over two million of them, and march out. He implied, uh, he, 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 he limped in with a stutter and with a stick. That's how he went into Egypt. And that's why God could use him, because he knew that he was not anything. God had deconstructed Moses' strength, not so he could sit back and say, oh, well, guess my life is over. My past my prime. Can't do much now. No, God had destructed, deconstructed Moses' strength because he wanted to teach him where his strength really came from. And God said, get up, Moses. I have a really important job for you to do. And if you think about it, we probably would know nothing of the story of Moses were it not for these later years. That, that's when he accomplished everything that he accomplished for God. Oh, maybe it would have been a nice little story about finding Moses in the bulrushes and everything else. But we might not even know anything about Moses had it not been for these last 40 years of Moses' life. When he thought that his strength was gone, when he thought that his usefulness to God was over, and everything we know about Moses and the great man that he became and how they talk about him and still talk about him for years and years and years, all of that about Moses, everything that he wrote in Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, all of those things came in that time when Moses thought that his was past his prime. God said, Moses, you're still alive, and I've still got a job for you to do. You're in a position where I can use you. And Moses spent the last 40 years of his life learning how God could take a somebody who thought he was a nobody and making something out of him and using him for God's glory. God doesn't need our impressiveness. He doesn't use the ones who know how valuable they are. He uses the ones who are broken. He uses broken vessels of clay. In fact, turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, and verse number 7. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse number 7, the Bible says this, but we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. There's nothing in an earthen vessel. There's nothing in a vessel that's made out of clay that's impressive. There's nothing that makes it valuable and until you know whose hand it's in. And that's what God is saying. We have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellency of his power may be of God and not of us. There's no other place that it could come from is from him. Turn a few pages over to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Paul, you know the story, had a thorn in his flesh and three times he prayed that God would remove that thorn and God said, no, I'm not going to do it. And Paul finally came to the conclusion that I can go on with this thorn in my flesh, and he recognized where his power was coming from because of that thorn. And he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse number 9, And he said unto me, My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in necessities, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then am I strong. So you may not have as much energy as you used to. And you may not be able to serve as long as you used to, but you can still do something. Turn over to Psalm 71. While you're turning over there, I want to read to you Isaiah 46. Keep your ears open as you turn, if you will. Isaiah 46 and verse 4 says, And even to your old age I am he, and even to whore heads will I carry you. I have made and I will bear, even I will carry and will deliver you. Amen. Psalm 71. 
entire psalm we could read because really it's a psalm for the aged. But there's a few verses in there that I think are really, really helpful to us this morning. Psalm 71 and verse 15. My mouth shall show forth thy righteousness and thy salvation all the day, for I know not the numbers thereof. I will go in the strength of the Lord God. I will make mention of thy righteousness, even of thine only. O God, thou hast taught me from my youth, and hitherto have I declared thy wondrous works. Now also when I am old and gray-headed, O God, forsake me not, until I have showed thy strength unto this generation, and thy power to everyone that is to come. The older you get, typically the more time you have on your hands, especially if you're retired. Get on your knees and beg God on behalf of this nation. Get on your knees and beg God on behalf of this church and on behalf of your pastor. Be here when the events are going on to help out and be an encouragement. Be here when we're passing out the Bibles. It's an easy ministry to get involved in. Share the gospel with your neighbors. They expect you to stand at the fence and talk for hours anyway. You might as well give them the gospel while you're doing it. Don't use old age as an excuse. Use it as a reason to say, I don't know how much time I have left, but I want to use every bit of it for the service of God. And Maybe you're not old, but you think you're past your prime. The most common excuse is, well, I just missed out on the opportunity to really serve God when I was younger. Oh, man. Then how much more should you be doing today to make up for lost time? That's not an excuse that we ought to be using. Get out there and do something for the Lord with the time that you have left. Moses was 80 years old when he went into the most significant time of his life in service to God. It's not too late to serve God no matter how old or young you are. Moses was old and God still used him. But I want you to turn over to 2 Samuel chapter 11. Because I also want you to see this. David had sinned and God still used him. David... I'm sure you're familiar with the story, was supposed to be with his men in battle. But he sent Joab in his place. And David walked out in the evening, and we pick it up there in 2 Samuel chapter 11 and verse number 2. It came to pass in an evening tide that David arose from off his bed and walked out upon the roof of the king's house. From the roof he saw a woman washing herself, and the woman was very beautiful to look upon. And David sent and inquired after the woman and said, one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? And David sent messengers and took her. She came in unto him, and he lay with her, for she was purified from her uncleanness, and she returned unto her house. Verse 14, it came to pass in the morning that David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. And he wrote in the letter, saying, Set ye Uriah in the forefront of the hottest battle, and retire ye from him that he may be smitten and die. How cold do you have to be to call this woman's husband back from the battle and give him a note that he's going to deliver that has his own death warrant inside that note? But Uriah was such a man of honor that he would not go back home to his, to his house when his men were out there fighting. He was such a man of honor that he didn't open that letter up before it got to the person that it was supposed to go to. And Joab gets this letter and opens it up. In verse number 16, it came to pass when Joab observed the city that he assigned Uriah unto a place where he knew that valiant men were. What a testimony of Uriah. Verse 17, and the men of that city went out and fought with Joab. And there fell some of the people of the servants of David, and Uriah the Hittite died also. I'm going to show you a picture in the next few weeks of the rooftops that David would have been looking down upon from his palace. 
they found that there and just outside the city of Jerusalem in the city of David. I think they were both in the wrong, but it was still wrong. And David knew it, if not before, then certainly after. Nathan put his finger in David's chest and said, Thou art the man. You took something that did not belong to you. You sinned against an almighty God. And boy, did David know it. Turn over to Psalm 51. His heart was broken over his sin. And that's recorded for us here in Psalm 51. And again, here's another psalm that we could read the entire passage of. We're not going to do that for the sake of time this morning. But in Psalm 51, David understood just how much his sin had broken the heart of God and just how much it had broken off his fellowship with his God. In verse number two, he says, Wash me throughly from mine iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is ever before me against thee. Thee only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight that thou mightest be justified when thou speakest and be clear when thou judgest. Verse 10, he says, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from thy presence, and take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation, and uphold me with thy free spirit. Verse 17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, thou wilt not despise. And therein lies the secret of David's usefulness after his sin. He didn't go on living as if nothing had happened. He didn't go on trying to pretend that God would just look past it. He was broken over his sin. But he got up, he dusted himself off, he took the punishment that was coming because of that sin, and he went on for the Lord. And turn over to Acts chapter 13. God was able to use David again despite the fact that he had sinned against God. Because of the fact that he was broken and because of the fact that he got it right with the Lord. And he didn't let that be something that kept him from serving God for the rest of his life. Acts chapter 13 and verse 22, the Bible says, And when he had removed him, he raised up unto them David to be their king. Talking about Saul, he removed Saul and he raised up David to be their king. To whom also he gave testimony and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after mine own heart, which shall fulfill all my will. This was written well after 1 Samuel was written. God could have kept that out of there if he thought that David had sinned to the point that he was never used again. But God included that in that passage in Acts chapter 13, a man after mine own heart. God was able to use David. And David's not the only example that we have in the Bible of, you, of God using a sinner. Paul had persecuted the Christians for years, put many of them to death, put many of them in prison. Paul said, uh, I'm the chief of sinners. And look how God used Paul. Peter had denied Christ three times on the night before Christ's crucifixion. And look how God used Peter. I'm so glad that God uses sinners or he would never have been able to use me. Turn over to Isaiah chapter 1. I got a lot of passages for you this morning, I know. And I appreciate you turning to those. But Isaiah chapter 1 and verse number 18. Isaiah chapter 1 and verse 18. He says this, come now. And let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. If ye be willing and obedient, ye shall eat the good of the land. But if ye refuse and rebel, ye shall be devoured with the sword, for the mouth of the Lord hath spoken it. 
You may say, Pastor, sometimes when you're pointing specific things out about my sin, it makes me feel bad. This message about sin, and oh, I don't, I don't like it. If you're pointing these things out, it's a little too close to home. I want to tell you something. That's what this book is all about. Amen. Good news. There's good news. It's the bad news that makes the good news good. If you never knew that you were a sinner, if you never knew that you were doing anything wrong, if you never felt bad, then there wouldn't be any good news to be excited about. But the good news of the gospel is that Jesus died to pay for those sins. We don't have to live that way. And what good news that is, but there would be no good news if there was no bad news first. The Bible says that the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, it's the power of God unto salvation. God is a God of grace. God is a God of forgiveness. God's a God of another chance and is a God who says, though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. Hallelujah for such a gospel. There's one thing that God will never accept when it comes to sin, and that's an excuse. When it comes to confession, thank God, the cleansing tides of Calvary sweep across the human soul, and every blot, every blur, every blemish is washed whiter than snow by Jesus' blood. Don't think for one minute that God can no longer use you because you sinned somewhere in your past. Don't think... Don't, don't, don't spend one second dwelling on the excuse that the devil's going to plant in your mind that God's done with you, so you might as well give up trying. Joel, chapter 2. In fact, turn over there if you can. This is a great verse to see. Now listen, David had to deal with some very serious consequences because of his sin. Nathan put that finger in David's chest and said, Thou art the man, and he said, You're going to pay that back fourfold. And David paid that back fourfold. The first was that the baby that he conceived with Bathsheba died. And that broke David's heart. But then his other kids turned against him and rebelled. And, and so many other things that happened as a result of David's sin. God didn't say, oh, okay, well, let's wipe away all those things. Sometimes there is a banquet of consequences that you have to sit down at if you choose to sin. Sometimes God has mercy. You might have to pay for those things, but that doesn't mean that God's no longer able to use you. It doesn't mean that God's done with you. Joel, chapter 2, and this is written to Israel, but I think it really applies to us today. Joel, chapter 2, and verse number 12, Therefore also now saith the Lord, turn ye even to me with all your heart, and with fasting, and with weeping, and with mourning. And get this, verse 13, and rend your heart and not your garments. And turn unto the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness, and repenteth him of the evil. Boy, it was, it was an outward expression when they would rend their garments. Oh, I'm in, I'm, I'm in misery. I'm in mourning. I'm going to rend my garments and make sure everybody knows that. And, and God said, it's not enough to just have an outward uh, appearance of being sorry for your sin. Rend your heart. Let there be mourning in your heart. And he says, if you get it right in your heart, turn unto the Lord your God. He's gracious. He's merciful. He's slow to anger. Great kindness. And he will repent him of the evil. Yes, there may be consequences for that sin. And yes, there may be some things that you miss an opportunity to do because of that. But God can still use you and it's never too late. Moses was old and God still used him. David had sinned, and God still used him. And lastly, I want you to see this. Turn over to Acts chapter 13. 
John Mark quit, and God still used him. Must have caused deep sorrow to Paul and Barnabas when John Mark just abruptly left them. He was with them on a missionary journey. They were getting on a ship, and I don't know if they knew it was going to happen or not, but he jumped on another ship and went back home. He came with them as far as Perga, and then he forsook them. The Bible says in Acts chapter 13 and verse number 13, now when Paul and his company loosed from Paphos, they came to Perga in Pamphylia, and John, departing from them, returned to Jerusalem. And I don't think it was, uh, it wasn't because John Mark was throwing in the towel and giving up on Christ and Christianity and all of that stuff. I think he was probably partly homesick and partly had reasons for why he was going back. But if you look at the rest of the context of the next few chapters, he was obviously giving up. Paul didn't look too kindly on that. But in uh, a couple chapters later, in Acts chapter 15, Paul was still not convinced that his heart was in the ministry, and that led to a very sharp quarrel with Barnabas. In Acts chapter 15, in verse number 37, and Barnabas determined to take with them John, whose surname was Mark, but Paul thought not good to take him with them, who departed from them from Pamphylia and went not with them to the work. So it's very obvious that John Mark left not on great terms. He quit. He threw in the towel. He was done. Paul said, we can't take him and, and, and have this thing happen again. And the contention was so sharp between them, it says in verse number 39, that they departed asunder one from another. And so Barnabas took Mark and sailed unto Cyprus. And Paul chose Silas and departed, being recommended by the brethren unto the grace of God. I don't know how significant that is in that verse, but it says that Paul, who chose Silas, was the one that was recommended by the brethren, which means Barnabas was trying to give John Mark a second chance, but even the brethren saw that John Mark had a problem with quitting. A soldier who has wavered in the battle may in the next go on to win a glorious victory, and that's exactly what happened with John Mark. Paul, in writing to Timothy several years later, after he laments Demas having forsaken him for this present world. He was reminded of the fact that John Mark quit, but he didn't stay on the sidelines. He got back in the battle. He said, take John Mark, for he is profitable to me for the ministry. There may have been a time in your life when you weren't very excited about the things of God. Maybe you were pursuing a career or following some dream, and it pulled you away from the Lord. Maybe somehow along the way you lost the joy of your salvation and you left your first love. Maybe you just quit because it's not easy to be a Christian. Maybe you're even in the middle of that right now. I want to tell you this morning that you can still get in the battle. You can still go on for Christ. God can still use you. And maybe the devil is telling you to quit because of that sin in your life. Maybe he's telling you to quit because you're too old or too far past God being able to really use you. Maybe you've listened to him. It's never too late to get back in the battle. Stand up. Confess your sins to the Lord. Tell the devil to get behind you. Ask the Lord for a renewed purpose and go on for him. You'll never regret a single second of service for the Lord. Turn over to Galatians chapter 6 and we're done. Galatians chapter 6. Verse number 9. Paul says, and let us not be weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall reap, if we faint not. It's a big if, but there's a big promise that comes with it. In due season we shall reap, if we faint not. 
I'm closing, but I want you to think about something with me for a minute. In a hundred years, we're all going to be buried next to family, maybe, in the same cemetery, some friends. Strangers are going to live in the house that we worked so hard to build. Somebody else is going to have that job that you gave so much of your life to. In fact, you're probably going to be replaced a day or two after you're gone. Everything that you do for your boss and all the overtime that you work and everything that you give to that company, they could care less about. Most of our possessions will either be thrown out or given to somebody else to own, including the car that we spent a fortune on. Our descendants will probably not even know who we are. You'll be a photo on somebody's wall or in a shoebox for a few years. And then in three generations, they're probably not even going to remember you. Do you know who your grandfather's father or grandfather was or what he did or what he spent his life doing? You don't even know his name more than likely, and in a few years, that's going to be you. Give it a few decades, and you're not even going to be a picture on the wall anymore. They probably won't even remember your name. A couple decades after you're gone, the deeds and the photos and your life's work is going to disappear into history's oblivion, and we won't even be memories. If we think about it, probably 95% of the things that we spend all of our effort and time and, and work and energy on are not going to matter one bit when it's over. The only thing that's going to matter is what we did for Christ. That's going to be remembered for all of eternity. Don't let the devil feed you the excuse that says you're too old. You can't serve Christ anymore. You're well past your prime. Remember all the things that you used to do for God. You can't do those anymore. It's never too late. Don't let him tell you that because you sinned, you're too worthless to be used by God. It's never too late. Don't, don't, don't let the excuse that you quit somewhere in your past be the reason that you can't get back up and keep going for God. It's never too late. There are some things that you can't take back, but you can always go forward. And it's never too late to start living for the Lord today. What excuse is the devil feeding you? What excuse are you believing on why you can't go on and serve God? Whatever it is, in 20 years, 30 years, 100 years, it's not going to matter one bit. Just like everything else that we spend so much of our time on. I'm not saying that you can't leave a legacy or that, you know, somebody write a book or something. I'm not saying that, that, that you, you know, that everything you're doing is for nothing. But think about how much of the stuff that we do that is for nothing. And then think about what you're doing for Christ today. It's time to get back up and start serving him again. I've said it many times. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. What are you doing for Christ that's going to last? What excuse are you listening to today that tells you you cannot go on and give more of your life for Christ? Because I'll tell you this, it's never too late. It's never too late to serve the Lord.
Let's pray. Father, we love you. Again, we thank you so much for your goodness to us. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your love. Thank you for salvation. Thank you for second chances. And God, I pray that if somebody needs a second chance in here this morning, that they would take that today. And God, that you'd be able to use every single one of us until the moment you come back or until we take our last breath on this earth. Every single person in this auditorium right now is still breathing. And you still have a job for us to do. I pray that you help us to never forget that. And God, I pray that you'd help us to want to be used to the fullest capacity until that moment comes when we step into eternity. And God, may we focus on things that are going to last forever rather than things that are going to be gone in a few years. Well, thank you again for all that you do for us in Jesus' name. Amen. If